Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Alexandra Hudson, author of the new book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Our Society and Ourselves. Uh, Lexi, welcome to Bookstack. Richard, thrilled to be here with you. And congratulations uh, on the new book. And and on the first page, you ask, why does this book uh, exist? So tell us why it exists. So I was raised in this home that was very attentive to manners, etiquette, and social norms. My mother is called Judy the Manners Lady. So she is this international expert on manners and propriety. And while writing this book, I discovered actually, Richard, that she's one of four women who are internationally renowned experts on etiquette named Judy. So here I thought my mother was the only one in the world, and she's one of four that we know of. Maybe there's more out there. So the most famous is the Washington Post columnist, Judith Martin. Um, but uh, So Miss Manners, but uh, yeah, my mom plus four others. But my mother's obviously my favorite uh, of these Judiths in the courtesy biz, and she's just defined by other-orientedness and graciousness towards others, which is the hallmark of true civility. But she also... Um, educated my brothers and I to mind our P's and Q's and in and, and the ways of, of politeness. And I am constitutionally allergic to authority. I don't like rules. I don't like being told what to do without sufficient justification. And my mother never really gave me those sufficient justification. You know, why do we use, why do we, why do we set our tables just so? Why do we use forks at all? Never, never got the answers I hungered for. But my mother promised me that following these rules would serve me well in school and in life. And she was right until I got United States Department of Education. <laughs> well, and, and and one of the things that uh, that she taught you was that these things, politeness, manners, civility, that they were actually an outward expression of our character. That's exactly right. That's why she cares about manners and etiquette to the extent that they facilitate this joint project of human community. She's passionate about the human social project, and she wanted to cultivate inner character and outer conduct that corroborated that inner character. And then when I got to government, though, I was surrounded by two extremes. On one hand, there were people with sharp elbows, people who would do or say anything to get ahead. On the other hand, there were people who, at first I thought they were my people, Richard. They were polished and suave and, and polite, but they would smile at me one moment and stab me in the back the next. And I had my mother's words that you just referenced ringing in my ears, that manners were an outward extension of our inward character. And yet I was surrounded by people who were well-mannered enough and yet ruthless and cruel. So that perplexed me and um, that helped clarify for me the need to disambiguate uh, manners and morals and recognize the fact that you could be well-mannered and lack internal goodness and inner morality. So at first I thought these two extremes were opposite. Extreme hostility was opposite from extreme politeness. But upon reflection, I realized that they're actually very similar because both modes see other people as means to one's selfish ends. And as instead of seeing people as worthy of respect just because they're people. And that clarified for me this essential distinction between civility and politeness. Yeah, because what you had seen was how politeness could be weaponized. Um, I, I think you described Washington as a toxic uh, environment, but Maybe you'd expected that bit, but what you hadn't expected was to see how politeness could play its role in that with this uh, smile and smile and be a villain aspect to it. 
That's exactly right. I quote that line from Shakespeare. The point is, yes, yeah, so a core part of my my book is that there is this essential distinction between civility and politeness. That politeness, I came to realize, is manners. It's etiquette. It is um, external. It's behavior. Whereas civility is internal. It's a disposition. It's it's a way of seeing others as our moral equals that sometimes requires being deeply impolite. It requires telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate. That is actually civil. That's a way of respecting others, not patronizing others by pretending that serious differences or disagreements don't exist when they do, but respecting ourselves enough to and others enough to, to bring to the fore important conversations. And then that that matters because I argue what we need more of in society is the disposition of civility that actually respects others and not the tone policing and papering over difference that politeness does. Often when people hear that there are two groups today, there are people on one hand that harken back to this golden era of gentility and chivalry. They said, we just need more politeness and civility in modern life to help us, you know, through this divided time. And there's another contingent that says, no, that, that they say politeness and civility are tools of the patriarchy and white supremacists, and they're tools of the people in positions of power to keep the powerless powerless. And what both these contingents miss is this essential distinction that, again, politeness is manners and etiquette. Civility is an inner disposition that sees others as our moral equals and sometimes requires being impolite to have hard truths and, 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 and that we need more of the latter, we need more civility and less, less politeness in our society to help us have the important conversations we need to have and to navigate this tough stuff of life together across difference, which is the most important question of our day. How do we flourish across difference? But also a timeless question. But before we move on to civility, I, I'm kind of curious about how hard you are on on politeness. That I mean, this this is surface only, uh, you say. But you know, I sometimes I think that we want surface. We want the courtesy, the politeness, these kind of things that. You don't necessarily want your colleague to be your friend, although, of course, sometimes they go on to be. But just this kind of basic politeness between people in the work environment or in the social environment, isn't, isn't that something that actually is very, very important to the way in which society operates? So at its best, politeness perfects civility, that the kind and nice gestures, the, the polish outside is corroborated and it comes from that inner disposition of actually respecting others and seeing them as, as our moral equals. What we often see too much of in the workplace, to, to use your example, Richard, is that polish without the basic respect. For example, one time when I was in government, a uh, colleague asked me to help him with the project. So I was happy to help him. And he smiled at me. He flattered me and said, please, like, you know, you look radiant today. Will you please help me? <laughs> so I helped him. Yeah, I didn't realize he expected me to do his entire project for him. Uh, but I did. And then he took my work, passed it off as his own and took, took credit for my work entirely. And then I never heard from him again. You know, gone were the pleasant trees and, and niceties. Or to take another common example is, you know, you, maybe you have your performance review coming up and your boss comes in with a new haircut and you absolutely rave about this haircut that you actually don't care much for. But, you know, you're trying to polish things. You're trying to smooth the, the way to have that conversation about your performance review, hoping that incurring that favor with that flattery will pave the way to a more positive, you know, performance review conversation later in the week. So, you know, in both those instances, the polish was there, but it was for the wrong reasons. It didn't actually respect the personhood and the equal moral worth of me in that first story or of one's boss in, in the second example. 
because we're seeing people as means to selfish ends as opposed to respecting people in and of themselves, regardless of how they can help us in return. And so ideally, in a perfect world, politeness will perfect the inner disposition of civility. But politeness on its own, without that inner disposition of civility, that that is going to be a prime tool of manipulation. That politeness is a tool that can be used to manipulate and undermine, or it can be used to facilitate, uh, take off the rougher edges of the tough stuff of, of life together. But alone, that the act, the gesture is, is not enough. We need what's more important is cultivating, again, that, that humanity, that appreciation of our own humanity and that of others that helps us respect people. And it, it seems to me that actually, whether we're talking about politeness or civility with both of those things, that in, in many ways, the true measure of that comes not so much in how we treat our friends, but in how we uh, treat our opponents. That provides the true test. And that is exactly correct, Richard, that that civility is tested um, precisely when it can't be enforced and when we don't want to. So let's go with the first one first, that you know, civility is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owed to others by virtue of our shared humanity, as I define it in the book. And that includes people we don't like, people who are not like us and people who cannot do anything for us in return, right? Like my colleague was nice to me because he wanted my help. We're nice to him, polite to our boss when we want to raise. Um, but what about the people who can't do anything for us? The clerk at the grocery store, the Uber driver. We owe them a bare minimum of respect, even though they can't repay. There's this lovely essay or speech given by, by Lord Moulton. I'm sure you, you're probably familiar with this speech, Richard. It's about what he calls obedience to the unenforceable. Lord Moulton says that there are three spheres of human action. On one hand, there's the sphere of complete freedom, complete human agency. On the other hand, there's a sphere of positive law, you know, government action controlling what we do. But within those two spheres of complete agency and positive law, there is this essential sphere called obedience to the unenforceable. And that is when we voluntarily control our actions and put limits on our actions for the sake of the human social project. And what's key about this, Richard, is that applies at, at the domestic and, and local level, like a democracy and the classical liberal project depends on citizens choosing to act well and in, in, in good ways when we have the opportunity to not act well. Because we don't want, we don't, we don't want a surveillance state. We don't want a, a, a police state that micromanages our everyday interactions. And that is where norms, social norms of civility that actually respect one another come to play. But, you know, we're, there are really devastating things happening in the Middle East right now. And this also applies, norms also apply at the macro level of international social relations where there is no international body, international police state that can enforce war norms. And that is exactly why they are norms, right? Like they're, they're not laws. They're not war laws. And so our integrity as countries and our character as countries at a national macro level and as citizens is, is tested directly at the proportion that we impose restraints. We do the right thing when there's no consequences for doing the wrong thing or when no one's going to see us do the wrong thing. That that's when our integrity and character is tested and it's revealed. And that is the obedience to the unenforceable that, that uh, Lord Moulton talked about, that is us choosing as individuals and as leaders to act well and act in pro-human ways that affirm the dignity of the human person when we have the opportunity to not act well. We're tempted to not act well. Yeah, and as you, as you say, we, we see those things uh, on the international stage, we see them on the political stage, even 
even uh, while I was reading, I, I was I was thinking about the kind of the concept of sportsmanship as well. That you know there are things which happen on the field of play where one player will behave in a particular way towards another, which are just about exactly what you've been talking about: civility more than politeness. That the, these kind of rules that are unenforceable, but which have been passed on from generation to generation. And so, I mean, in terms of thinking about where we are today, do you feel that these things have always been challenged? Or do you feel that we're in a particular point of challenge that, you know, when you've already cited the terrible example of, of what's going on uh, in Israel with the terrorist attack and and the the politics of the day uh, we've seen for the first time uh, the speaker vacated in the House of Representatives. So whether it's politics, whether it's international politics, whatever is going on, we seem to be in a new phase of of a lack of civility. It's an excellent question, Richard. the The answer is yes, is both and. <laughs> so there's a reason I wrote this book right now. I experienced firsthand and witnessed firsthand the deep divisions in our modern life today. But I also realized over the course of writing this book that this question of how might we flourish across deep difference, even when we profoundly disagree, this is a timeless question. It is the defining question of democracy, of the classical liberal project, but also of the human species. This is because we are profoundly social as a species. We, as long as we've been around, we've, we've come into groups and we've yearned for relationship. We become fully human and become our best selves in relationship with others. And yet we are also morally and biologically defined by self-love. We are geared to meet our own needs before those of others. And those two aspects of who we are our intention, the social and the selfish. And that is why friendship, community, civilization itself, democracy is always fragile. It's always precarious. It's never a foregone conclusion. So on one hand, this is a timeless problem. On the other hand, and because it's a problem of the human condition, on the other hand, there are many facets of our current moment that make this a particularly you know, pernicious challenge, that, that, that exacerbate and enhance our baser instincts and these baser aspects of ourselves. For example, modern technologies that allow mistruths or the, um, you know, vitriolic rhetoric from our leaders or from, you know, everyday citizens to harm people uh, in, in unprecedented reach and harm people in unprecedented ways. The way our, our communities are, are disintegrating and the decline of civil society. I, as I talk in my book, there are people that are um, doing their utmost to reverse this trend at the local level and rebuilding, reweaving our social fabric from the grassroots level that I think those are stories worth telling. But on the whole, there are marked declines in our friendships in our and families. That's concerning. And so much the same, but also much that is that is different. That makes this a particularly important question now. Yeah, and I, I was quite struck, actually, in reading that uh, at various points in the book, you do speak about civility in an explicitly religious uh, way, that uh, civility is linked to a higher calling, you argue. Sometimes that's religion, sometimes it's it's about our understanding of the sublime, but it definitely has this this sense of a higher calling. Yeah, so my my philosophy of civility is grounded in a very high view of personhood and the gift of being human. That I, I argue that a root cause of incivility in our world is is because people insufficiently appreciate the gift of being human 
in themselves and also insufficiently appreciate the gift of being human in others. That often is a cliche that hurt people hurt people, but often maliciousness in our world stems from people insufficiently, you know, appreciating the high gift of their own, of their own personhood. So my book is in many ways a humanist manifesto. I was really influenced by the Christian humanists of the Italian Renaissance, of the European Renaissance. Erasmus of Rotterdam um, is, a, is a key player, a protagonist in, in my book and a big influence on, uh, intellectual influence on me. But you know, and the whole ethos of of the of the humanist, the Christian humanist, was reaching our potential as human beings and cultivating all aspects of who we were, and, and being creative as as a, as a result, and making our world better and more beautiful because we were created in God's image. We bear the imprint of the divine, the imago dei, and that makes us unique in creation amongst the created world and, and amongst living species. Um, and so that's an explicitly, you know, Judeo-Christian notion, the Imago Dei. I'm, I'm a Christian, and it's particularly important to my approach to life, my my philosophy of civility, and a, and a core argument of the book. And you know, where does where does anger fit into all of this, which very often seems to be in conflict with uh, civility, but sometimes, you know, righteous anger at injustice, at cruelty, at barbarity is necessary, isn't it? So, so how, do, how do we balance those two? Civility both demands action sometimes, but also takes certain action off the table. So civility never represses emotion, never steamrolls, never silences. That's the stuff of politeness. And again, let's just go back to etymology for a second. Uh, the Latin root of these two words, civility and politeness, supports this distinction that I argue for in the book, that the Latin root of politeness is polier, which means to smooth or polish. And that's what politeness does. It papers over, polishes over different, sweeps it under the rug, you know, represses anger and emotion. Whereas civility, the Latin root is civitas, all things related to citizenship and uh, the citizen in the city. And that is what civility is. It's the, the, the tools and the conduct and the habits befitting a citizen in, in the Kiftos. And democracy, nowhere in our founding documents does it say never be angry. You know, like negotiating life across difference is what democracy facilitates and enables. And so sometimes the duty of citizenship is being angry at an injustice and, and demands that we take a stand. And that is why in my conception of my book, I reclaim the whole tradition of civil disobedience, right? Dr. King and, and Gandhi and Thoreau, that sometimes action is required because of love of country and love of our fellow citizens. It's saying, I respect you enough to tell you that I think you're wrong and I'm going to do something about it to show you. I'm going to confront you with your hypocrisy. But at the same time that civility demands action sometimes, it also takes certain action off the table. For example, never engaging in violence, never engaging in an ad hominem attack, never violating people's basic right to property, life, liberty, property, that those, um, that those things, those modes degrade the dignity of the human personality while telling someone hard truth and, and confronting them, being angry, even like forcefully bringing our emotions to the table in a conversation, that's actually a way of respecting ourselves and others. So civility both simultaneously demands action, demands that we respect ourselves enough to voice concerns and have difficult conversations about things that are bothering us or injustice in the world, but it also takes certain action off the table, actions that degrade the dignity and personhood of our fellow citizens and human beings. But it would be possible to have civility and not be a pacifist. Of course, of course it would be. So, for example, I love the story of, of Dr. King. So anyone who 
uh, wanted to be a part of his peaceful nonviolent resistance movement in, in, the, in the wake of the bigotry and, and Jim Crow era in American history. Dr. King made everyone undergo this process of purification. Purification was this training that helped cultivate in the people who wanted to protest with him a fundamental love for and respect for the people whom they were protesting, confronting, making sure that they were trained to keep front and center the dignity of the white supremacists that they were out there protesting. And that love and respect, well, only once it was cultivated, informed and, and demanded their action, their sit-ins, their, their protests. But again, um, it never allowed it to devolve into, and never allowed them to, to take a violence. It, it demanded action, but also took action off the table. And it it is one of the it's one of the fascinating things about the book that you do talk about the philosophical and ethical elements to this that because you know even as we're talking about it here it does raise that question that you know to what extent civility sometimes needs to be defended uh, sometimes by the state using legitimate violence um, in the the case of the uh, the Middle East for example that we're talking about now that. Uh, so that these are the, these are fascinating questions, but I, I guess that's the thing that I, I would put to you: Does civility sometimes require kind of behaviour to back it up, to support it, that also in, includes using force? So I love to point to examples like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison. Like if there was ever a time in history where, where you know, even entertaining the idea of violence was justified, it was in the fight to abolish the unconscionable evils of slavery and the subjugation of an entire race in American history. And yet prominent abolitionists like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison, for them, violence was completely off the table. Why? Because they cared deeply about personhood, about human dignity and the equality, the fundamental rights and equality of all human beings. And that's why they did what they did their entire life. And they knew that in their pursuit of perfect equality for all human beings, they could not violate the dignity and personhood of some in the pursuit of dignity and, and, and equality under the law for others. They couldn't, you know, take violent action against white supremacists in the name of promoting equality under the law for, for slaves. So that was how they justified it. I also think it's interesting, the story of Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German Protestant theologian under the Third Reich. Um, he, he struggled deeply with this question. Do my moral convictions cause me, wh where do they cause me to fall? And he was, he was, um, he was deeply troubled by this question. He, he was a part of a plot to assassinate Hitler, um, very seduced by this utilitarian argument that by assassinating Hitler, he would preserve the dignity and personhood of millions of people that Hitler, you know, brutally tortured and, and murdered and the genocide that was produced under the Third Reich. And so ultimately he came down on that side of the question where, yes, you know, it, it was justified in his mind to, to kill Hitler for the sake of saving millions. But it was still a tough question for him. It was not an unequivocal question. Uh, and I think if that gave him pause, and if many of the prominent abolitionists, if it gave them pause to take up violence, even in the most noble of endeavors of crusades, then that should give us pause too. And I mean, in terms of uh, kind of thinking about these issues, you say in the book that it's exhausting. And this is a good uh, example of why it's exhausting, that 
these are in in many ways uh, philosophical and ethical questions that have captivated confused uh, generation after generation going back not just for centuries but for millennia that's exactly right this is not a new question and one thing i've noticed so so you know part of our problem part of the reason we conflate these two terms civility and politeness we have good old Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson, to thank for this. So in the 1755 uh, dictionary, the first English dictionary, this immense scholarly feat that, that we have Dr. Johnson to thank for, he defines civility in terms of politeness and politeness in terms of civility. And we have ever since, if you go to dictionary.com right now or pick up a Webster's at your, you know, your local library, civility defined in terms of politeness, politeness in terms of civility. But so that, that, that's like a problem in our language. Thankfully, though, our language is descriptive. Unlike French that has uh, the Académie Française that says, no, this is the set in stone definition of every French word. And we're never going to deviate from that. English is a much more organic and kind of bottom up uh, language. That's, that's the approach that Dr. Johnson took when he was ri writing his dictionary. He, was, he defined words as they were currently used, not as uh, he thought they should be used. And I think that in our current moment, it's especially necessary for us to update our language to our current needs. And what we need right now is words to describe the modes of action, of actually respecting others, of engaging with our fellow human beings and citizens that affirm the dignity of the human person, but that also enable and foster uh, conversations and, and, and cooperation across deep difference in our very divided moment. So the book is The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Our Society and Ourselves. It's written by my guest, Alexandra Hudson, and it's published by St. Martin's Press. But for now, Lexi, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Such a pleasure, Richard. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 